Well, I have two perfect candidates that I would vote for if these two persons would run. Okay, let's hear it. Two of them. Who are they? The first one is... Thank you for tuning in to the Removing Barriers podcast. I'm Jay. And I'm MCG. And we're attempting to remove barriers so we can all have a clear view of the cross. This is episode 142 of the Removing Barriers podcast. And in this episode... We will be talking about GOP presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy and whether American Christian voters should be voting for a Hindu candidate. Let me add this. This episode is in no way an endorsement of Vivek or his campaign. Hi, this is Jay. MCG and I would like for you to help us remove barriers by going to removingbarriers.net and subscribing to receive all things Removing Barriers. If you'd like to take your efforts a bit further and help us keep the mics on, consider donating at removingbarriers.net slash donate. Removing Barriers, a clear view of the cross. All right, so Jay, who is Vivek rhymes with cake Ramaswamy? I'm glad you said Vivek rhymes with cake because the mispronunciations of his name are so... Anyway, I'm glad you said Vivek like cake because his name is frequently mispronounced. It is Vivek. Ramaswamy. Vivek Ramaswamy is a 38-year-old American entrepreneur who is running for the presidency of the United States in the 2024 elections. He was born in Cincinnati, Ohio, to immigrant parents from India. Vivek Ramaswamy graduated from Harvard with a bachelor's degree in biology, and then he graduated from Harvard Law with a JD before he established his biotech company, He had worked as a hedge fund manager. He decided to run for the presidency after firsthand run-ins with woke culture in the form of DEI and ESG requirements, and as well as cancel culture. He wrote books about it, denouncing their effect on both the country and business, the flourishing of business. He is married to Apoorva Ramaswamy, and Apoorva is a practicing surgeon. So she's a medical doctor, and they have two very small children. I don't know their ages, but I know that the older is not, I'm pretty sure, not older than four years old, if I'm not mistaken. But we could probably fact check that and go back and figure that one out. But two very small children. He's a practicing Hindu, which may be a sticking point for some voters, and that is the focus of our discussion today. Well, I don't have anything to add to that. That's definitely who is Vivek, at least what we know publicly from about him. him. Mm -hmm. So we know these few facts about Vivek, where he's from, what his occupation is, why he's running, what caused him to decide to run. So the next question would be, what is his campaign message? Because the GOP candidate list is actually quite deep. There are many people running for president on the GOP side this election season. And what makes his message so different? What is his campaign message? Well, to be honest, I'm not quite sure his campaign message is that different than Donald Trump's, except he believes that he's a younger, more fit version of Donald Trump, and he believes he can accomplish or build upon what Donald Trump has done in the four years he was president and do even more. So technically follow Donald Trump's blueprint that he has laid down and build upon it and believe he can accomplish more. 
But in Vivek's own words, he's running on 10 truths. And here is Vivek at the first GOP presidential debate when he talked about those things. Mr. Ramaswamy. I was born in 1985, and I grew up into a generation where we were taught to celebrate our diversity and our differences so much that we forgot all of the ways we are really just the same as Americans, bound by a common set of ideals that set this nation into motion in 1776. And this is our moment to revive those common ideals. God is real. There are two genders. Fossil fuels are a requirement for human prosperity. Reverse racism is racism. An open border is not a border. Parents determine the education of their children. The nuclear family is the greatest form of governance known to man. Capitalism lifts us up from poverty. There are three branches of government, not four. And the U.S. Constitution, it is the strongest guarantor of freedom in human history. That is what won us the American Revolution. That is what will win us the revolution of 2024. You know... I can't say I disagree with his 10 points, except I have questions. Okay. So when he says God is real, being a Hindu, the obvious question is, which God? Which God are we talking about? What's the name of this God? Being a Hindu, that's the obvious questions Christians are going to have because, you know, a God by any other name is a God? No. The Bible teaches about one true God. So that's the obvious question we have. For Vivek, if I ever should talk to him. But I can't say I necessarily disagree on the surface of what he's saying. I'm glad there's a candidate who's bold enough to say that there are only two genders. And of course, Vivek, being a biologist, would know and should know. But you don't have to be a biologist. A biology major, yeah. You don't have to be a biologist, Justice Jackson, <laughs> to know that there are two genders. <laughs> His third point, human flourishing requires fossil fuel. Prove him wrong otherwise. The reason why the U.S. and the West is prosperous is because of fossil fuel. Reverse racism is racism. That's something that we shout from this podcast all the time. You know, BLM is not looking to stop racism. They're trying to acquire black supremacy. And that's racism. An open body is no bother at all. Can't blame him on that one. That's true. And I'm a immigrant myself, so <laughs> that's true. Parents determine education of their children, of course. The nuclear family is the greatest form of governance known to mankind. The nuclear family was instituted by God all the way back in the beginning. Capitalism lifts people up from poverty. Prove him wrong otherwise. Compare Cuba to the U.S. Can't say he's wrong there. There are three branches of the U.S. government, not four. When he says not four, he's talking about all these government agencies that actually have power to do a lot of things that they shouldn't have to do. Can't blame him there. And he's right. The U.S. Constitution is the strongest guarantee of freedom in history in the U.S. I would add in the U.S. However, I think that's one of the things that a lot of Americans get wrong. What's that? The amount of power they believe the president has. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have that much power. Right. To prove my point, compare the president of Russia to the president of the United States. The president of Russia has way more power over that country than the president of the United States. Of course, we can argue about freedom and all these other things. And yes, I will agree with that, but I'm just talking about just the power that one person has compared to other with the same title. 
you know, we have three branches of government, equal but separate powers. So technically, Congress has the same amount of power as the president. But the power is separated. They have their thing that they have power over, the president has their thing that he has power over. Even compare the president of the United States to a prime minister of a country. A prime minister still has more power over the country that he rules than the president of the United States. Because most, at least from my experience, and I think this is true for most countries that have a parliamentary system, I don't see candidates or members of parliament breaking away from their party and vote otherwise. At least I've never seen it happen in the Caribbean. So if you're the prime minister, that means you have the most vote in parliament because you have most of the members of parliament are of the same party like you. They usually don't. I've never seen it happen that they vote against a proposal from the prime minister or whatever. I'm sure they disagree in private, but when it comes to parliament to vote, they don't disagree. But in the U.S., you have people like Manchin and whosoever else voting one way this way and voting another way. And I'm glad for that because it kind of prevents them from doing anything. But I'm just simply saying, if you're just comparing powers, the president of the United States doesn't have that much power. What is the bedrock and what really is the power of the United States? I will agree with him. It's the Constitution. Mm-hmm. The Constitution, that's the bedrock right there. Because as some people say, the Constitution is actually the true king of the land. So I do agree with his campaign message in a sense, as he encapsulated in those 10 points. There are the stuff that he has said that, of course, I disagree with on something. That there's something that I just don't care about. But of course, he wants to drain the swamp, if you want to put it that way. He's planning to cut the federal workers by... I think he said 75%. Something like that. I'm a federal contractor. <laughs> I know the waste that's in the federal government. I've seen it. Like every September, October time frame, usually if you're working under a federal contract, either your employer or someone from the federal government might say, hey, we have X amount of dollars left in the budget. And if we don't use it, we're going to lose it. Mm-hmm. So they might ask you to work extra hours. I've experienced that where my employer asked me to work extra hours so they can consume the rest of the money that the government have allotted to them because they want the next fiscal year that the government either gives them the same or more mm-hmm. rather than cutting the budget. To me, that's waste. There's many times that you join a federal contract and you're there for a month or two being paid full salary before the government organizes itself and tell you exactly what they want you to do. I'm a software engineer, so sometimes you don't have any guidance from the government as to what to do and what to bail on what direction their project is going because they take two months to give you a project manager. There's a lot of waste in the federal government. Sure. And we're talking about agencies that may or may not be necessary. So I don't think he could accomplish 75%, 70 or 75%, but I do agree with cutting the waste. So I agree with his 10 truths, have questions, especially for the first one. Which God are you talking about? But his campaign message, as I said, if you want to encapsulate it in those 10 truths, I can't say I disagree with them. Yeah, I agree with you. The first one is a real sticking point. It's a very empty statement to say God is real. The reason I say it's empty is because it could mean whatever you want it to mean. In the Hindu faith, their concept of God is quite different than what the Christian God is. And so if you say that God is real, 
then you absolutely need to define what you mean by God, because what you believe about God influences or determines what you believe about yourself, what you believe about others, what you believe about the world, what you believe about how you should behave and how others should behave. And so if you are running for the highest office in the land, that would be, I think, a very important question to hash out. Yeah, but I think he's purposefully vague. He has to. to exactly. Uh, yeah, to appeal to as many people as possible. But as a Christian, for me, that would be a sticking point. I agree with that. The two genders, I don't have a problem with. Human flourishing requiring fossil fuels. I understand what he's saying there. I don't think that's necessarily true, but I do understand what he's saying there. And I do think that if we go the very radical way of abolishing fossil fuels, as some activists would want us to, you're going to kill a lot of people practically overnight. And it's just not a wise or feasible thing to do. So I understand what he's saying there, although I don't agree that it's like patently true, if that makes any sense. I don't know how to further explain that. Reverse racism being racism. I agree with that. An open border is no border at all. I agree with that. One of the most important things that I think needs to be addressed in the next presidential candidate or in the presidential elections in 2024 is the border. It's a significant problem. So I agree with that. Parents determining the education of their children. No qualms there. My question is, why does a presidential candidate need to say that? But we can discuss that later about the role of the presidency and well, what we're expecting from... look at the from... other side. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> right. Let's see here. The nuclear family being the greatest form of governance. Yes. I will say yes with an asterisk because the nuclear family is made up of individuals and the individual and their right relationship with God is provides the foundation and the bedrock for the form of governance that family is. So yes, I agree. But with a little asterisk there, we could go ahead and hash that out later. Capitalism lifting people up out of poverty. Yes, but also with an asterisk. Capitalism, as with anything in the world that is good, let's say, needs to be subject to something because if it's allowed free reign, it will destroy. Let's take crony capitalism, for example. So capitalism unfettered, unrestrained, not subject to Christ is what I'm trying to say, will destroy lives. And so let's just say I agree, but with a little asterisk there as well. Yeah, but crony capitalism is not capitalism. But I do agree with you that capitalism, of course, would need a safety net. Right. Because there are going to be some folks that are not as smart as Vivek. Let's put it that way. And the guy is absolutely brilliant. There's no doubt about that. But Capitalism lifts people out of poverty, but it can also generate poverty and leave people behind. And I'm not saying that we absolutely have to save those people in an economic sense. I'm not saying that necessarily, but suffice it to say for this particular moment in the podcast, I agree, but with a little bit of an asterisk, I think that needs to be fleshed out a little bit more. Three branches of the government. I agree with that, not four. Now he's talking about the alphabet soup agencies. Right. But I think the media can also be lobbed into that as well. The incredible influence that the media has to influence people and to influence policy or to meddle in government affairs or how things are run is a, a significant problem. And the fact that we can't even trust our media anymore. I think many people since the pandemic have realized that we can't really trust our media. We don't have a free and fair media presence in the country. Well, I would agree with that statement. Absolutely. And that the U.S. Constitution is the strongest guarantor of freedoms in history. I can't really argue with that. I think that's an actual fact. So 
I have a few more asterisks than you, MCG, but I do like what he's saying. And it, I think it needs to be said. I think there's a lot of kneeling to the woke and progressive culture and platform. So I like what he's saying. I just have a few questions and a few asterisks as well. Yeah, well, we can go ahead and discuss those because, as I said, capitalism, I believe, lifts more people out of poverty than people that he might have driven into poverty. Of course, we know if capitalism may have its free reign, just like any other form of any other system, as you said, that might be good. You can see the dangers of it Mm -hmm. because, of course, we are humans, we are fallen, we have a sinful nature, and greed can be a big problem in capitalism as well. So I do agree with you to some extent, but that doesn't change the fact that if you want to get out of poverty, capitalism is the best form. I agree. That can lift you out. I agree. But corrupted. Right, corrected, no, but especially in a country like the U.S., I can't think of any other country or maybe just a few where you can migrate to with $20 in your pocket at 20 years old. And when you're 60, you're a millionaire. Mm-hmm. There's not much countries in the world that can allow you to do that. Sure. And I remember when I was in college, and I think this is true, I had a software engineering teacher and he always says that if you're just willing to work hard in this country, you can come out ahead. Mm-hmm. And of course, I follow Dave Ramsey as well. and I remember something Dave Ramsey said. Dave Ramsey said that if you make minimum wage in this country from 16 or 18 until you retire at 65 and you save $100 per month from that minimum wage salary, Mm -hmm. you can retire a millionaire. So there's opportunities in this country. And that's probably one of the great aspects of America in terms of when it comes to that is opportunities. The freedom you have to start a business, to run a business, to work, to save, to invest, it rivals practically any other country in the world, maybe except for a few. So, yes, I believe that there should be a social safety net. As a Christian, we probably should say the Bible said that that job right. for the, the widows the family, is the church. I would say the family first and then the church. Yeah, the home and then the church in terms of, you know, taking care of people who can't help themselves. Mm-hmm. So that, you can argue, should be the social safety net. Of course, we live in a fallen world. Right. Everyone is not going to be a member of a church. So should the government have a social safety net? I guess you can say yes to that in a sense, understanding that, hey, if Christians are not doing the job that they should be to get everybody saved, and we're not going to get everybody saved. So Sure. But yes, let's just put it this way. It should be some sort of safety net for those who fall on hard times, those who are mentally challenged, those who are sick, those who are elderly and stuff like that. But if you're a young, working-age man or woman, you shouldn't have any excuse in this country where education is basically free, up to 12th grade, and you can buy a lawnmower for $100 and go mow someone's yard and stuff. There's opportunities here. So I do believe that capitalism, more than any other, you can lift yourself out of poverty. So yeah. again, we're looking at encapsulation of his message. I'm sure he would agree to some degree that capitalism, pure on its own, Need some checks and balances. Mm-hmm. Of course, we're talking about someone here who's a multimillionaire as well. So Billionaire, I'm sure. So when we look at the 10 points of his campaign message, he calls them the 10 commandments of the 2024 elections. One would have to assume that this is coming from the worldview of Hinduism because he, from his own words, he is a practicing Hindu. Now, what that actually means, I don't 
really know because Hinduism is such a vast and complicated religion and some people only follow it along philosophical lines and not necessarily religious or spiritual lines. So perhaps it'll be good for us to try to define the difference between Hinduism and biblical Christianity. Yeah, definitely. I'm no expert in Hinduism. Same here. I've met one or two Hindus at the door. I try to go regularly to knock on doors and share my faith. I've met a number of Hindus in my area. I actually meet more Muslims than Hindus. Mm -hmm. So I can't say that I'm an expert, but from what I understand, Hinduism is not a single religion, but a compilation of many traditions and philosophies. Mm -hmm. There are about four major sets of Hinduism. They worship many gods, even though some sets do worship only one god. They believe in something called Atman, or a belief in a soul, and that your life goal is to achieve moksha. And here is someone that knows a lot more about Hinduism explaining what moksha is. The cycle of birth and life is infinite. There are as many lives ahead of you as there are behind you. A soul travels the length of eternity using many lives, many bodies, and many identities. Karma, or the cycle of action and reaction, dictates the course of the soul's journey. The soul commits deeds and bears the consequences of its actions. These consequences drive the soul through many lives, each full of many different experiences. With time, the soul learns to shed karmic weight and escapes the cycle of life and death. It becomes one with the universe, which is eternal and infinite. It achieves moksha. No, that couldn't be more opposite of biblical Christianity. Mm. They're talking about their reincarnation. They're talking about living multiple lives, coming back and all these things, which are not taught in Scripture. Mm-hmm. Nothing there is taught in Scripture. It's just... Well, from the outset, their idea of this universal God that they're talking about, what the soul returns to when it attains moksha is called the Brahman. And that's everything in the universe as well as the universe itself all encompassed in one. It is in everything and yet outside of everything. It is pervasive. It can be defined as their principal God. And yet this God is very, what's the word? Not elusive, but there is no concrete definition of this particular God. It's very vague, very nebulous, and yet it's pervasive. It's in everything, around everything. It is everything. That's how they define Brahman. And this is coming from someone who is not in any way educated in the things of Hinduism. I'm sure a practicing Hindu would be able to explain it a lot better. But they believe that this immortal soul, the Atman, achieves moksha, which is breaking from the cycle of birth and rebirth, by combining not just karma, which are the things that the soul does in the body that it has. basically good works. Good works. But in addition to good works, they believe you must also practice your dharma. Dharma, Mm -hmm. it's defined very loosely and also quite inadequately as proper behavior. Every single being has its own dharma. It's basically morality. Yeah, the morality that it's supposed to do, but not just morality, it's morality specific to what you are. So a person has different dharma from a dog, from a lion, from a tree, from a 
So each being has its own dharma. When you don't follow your dharma, terrible things happen. You can't achieve moksha and society and life itself can't function properly. So in order to achieve moksha, you have to have good karma and combine it with dharma in order to achieve moksha. And there's also one other aspect to this. The four goals in life are dharma, artha, and kama. All these things come together to achieve moksha. So artha is the one that we haven't quite described yet. It's basically prosperity and your reputation. So if you pursue these things and you avoid the six temptations, which are kama, which is lust, kruda, which is anger, loha, which is greed, moha, which is an unrealistic attachment to people or to power, mada, which is pride, and matsariya, which is jealousy. If you can achieve those four things, I'm sorry, those three things, dharma, artha, and kama, and avoid those six temptations that I just mentioned, then the soul can break the cycle of rebirth and achieve moksha. They also require a belief in the Vedas. Those are their sacred writings. There are four Vedas, and I can't even begin to explain them. These are very ancient texts, and what they mean and what they're about is beyond the scope of this particular podcast. But these Vedas are not just descriptions of their spiritual and religious gods, but also how you are to live. There are elements of worship in those Vedas to those deities, and Hinduism has literally thousands of different gods. And in addition to the Vedas, you have the Upanishads, which are like philosophical musings, if you will, or thoughts about how to practically live out the Vedas. All of these texts, and including many more, are essential to at least having a basic understanding of the Hindu faith. And even though there are many different sects of Hinduism, there are many different philosophical routes of Hinduism, there are certain things that you actually have to believe in to be considered Hindu. Yeah, of course, I think it boils down to this, you know, like all religions, Hinduism, except for biblical Christianity, emphasize, you know, good work. So basically you're working your way towards moksha, basically. Right. And of course, because of what they believe, most Hindus, of course, they don't eat cows and most of them don't eat meat at all. Yes, most of them are vegetarian, for sure. Anyway, here is Vivek talking to Glenn Beck, and Glenn Beck asks him a similar question. Say you believe in the same one God, but that's not Hindu. So, Glenn, what I've said is we share the same value set in common. My faith is there is one true God, and yes, that is Hindu. There's many branches of Hinduism. Catholicism to evangelical Christians in the Christian tradition. There are many branches of Hinduism. The one I've been raised in, and it's a widespread mainstream view, is one true God. That's my worldview. But more importantly, this is a Judeo-Christian nation founded in Judeo-Christian principles. This is a fact of history. I think we need a commander-in-chief who shares those values in common. And as somebody who has been educated in Christian high school, has, if I may say it, Glenn, myself, read the Bible most more closely than most of my Christian friends, I can say with certitude that we share the same value set in common of sacrifice, of duty, of a belief that God put each of us here for a reason, that we're here for a purpose, that there's more to life than just the aimless passage of time. Think about the common thread from the Old Testament to the New. God told Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. He didn't make him follow through with it. In the New Testament, God sacrificed his own son. That value of sacrifice 
That is woven into the fabric of this country. It is woven into my own upbringing and value set, the same values we raise our two sons in. And I think, Glenn, especially because I'm a little bit different, I'm a little younger. I'm the youngest candidate to run. I'm of a different generation. Yes, I'm of a different faith, nominally. I think I'm in a better position to defend religious liberty, to actually make concepts like faith and patriotism and hard work and family cool again, actually, for the next generation of Americans. I take that responsibility seriously. So, no, I'm not qualified to run for pastor. I can't. That wouldn't make any sense. But when I'm running for commander-in-chief, the question is, do we share the same value set that this nation was founded on? In my case, the answer is yes. We live our life accordingly. And the standard I want everyone, including every Christian in this country, to hold me to is, do I want my two sons to grow up and be like him? Whoever that is in the White House, I think that's a standard we should apply. If we're being really honest, it's been a long time, at least I'll speak for myself, where we've had a president where I could, without holding my nose, tell my kids the same two things. And I think a lot of Christians across this country would say the same thing. Yeah, you know, on a high level, I may agree with a lot of things that Vivek just said, but he got so much things wrong, especially about Christianity and stuff like that. I'll start here. Mm-hmm. And this is not an attack on Vivek. This is just me personally. Mm-hmm. I don't want any of my sons to grow up to be like any of the U.S. presidents. And I'm talking about all throughout history. I can't think of any one of them that I would say, yeah, I wish my son would grow up to be like that. No. The only person, to be honest, I want to be a role model for my kids, and this is probably a dangerous statement to make, is myself. I don't think that my sons, and that's true for you as a parent too, I don't think your kids need to have a role model outside of you and maybe their grandparents or whatever the case may be. This thing that we are looking outside to presidential candidates and presidents and sport figures and famous people and billionaires and all these people to be our role models for our kids. No. Fathers, mothers, be your role models to your kids. You be their hero, in a sense. I grew up in a home where I didn't have a dad. My dad was never my hero, you know. So if there's something I can leave for my kids, I prefer that they look at me and say, hey, you know what? One day they're going to look and say, hey, you know what? There goes my hero. I don't want a president candidate and billionaires and millionaires and sports figures or whoever to be my kids' role models. So that's just a pet peeve there. I just want to pick on. Also, <laughs> he mentioned that Hinduism has different branches and he talked about evangelicals and Catholics. That's why I like the term biblical Christianity because, quite honestly, Catholics are not a member of biblical Christianity. Sorry. Many of these denominations out there do not hold to the fundamentals of the faith, and therefore I don't consider them to be biblical Christianity. If you disagree, you can contact us and let us know. But hey, well, what he says on an overall level, because I remember when a lot of, and we could probably talk about this a little bit later, the problem a lot of Christians, and when I say Christians, I'm talking about small C Christians at this point, had with Trump, and even big C Christians as well, was his lack of moral background where he say things and do things and probably had to live a promiscuous life and stuff like that. And a lot of Christians would say something similar to what Vivek just said is that he's running for president not to be the pastor. Mm -hmm. And while I wish we could hold our president to that same standard, we do understand that we can't. But to me, it's a cop-out on Christian part when they say, hey, I'm voting for a president not the pastor. Like somehow the moral standard should be different. 
I don't agree that the moral standard should be different. I understand by nature of the world we live in, it will be different, but that doesn't mean that we should go in, I guess, with that expectation that, yes, I'm not going to have an outstanding moral guy to vote for that maybe share our values. But at the end of the day, it has to come down to what Vivek says. Who is the person who will allow us as Christians to flourish? Who will create an environment in the country where we're not being persecuted, we're free to do certain things? Of course, the Constitution will prevent people like President Biden and future President Harris or whatever from instituting certain things. But if they ever get control of the courts and they ever get control of Congress and the Constitution is ignored, they can institute some laws that will definitely hinder or make practicing your faith a little bit harder. So I can agree on some level that you can look for a candidate who allow you to flourish in that space, even though that candidate might not hold, quote unquote, to the fundamental of the biblical faith or biblical Christianity. So I don't necessarily disagree with what Vivek just said. Well, I disagree, but I do understand what he's mm-hmm, saying. Mm-hmm. And on a high level, I do understand. But since we're comparing, you know, biblical Christianity to Hinduism, and we talk about what Hinduism is, what is biblical Christianity, though? That is the important question here. And the first thing I want to make very clear is that biblical Christianity, and note what I'm saying, I'm not saying Christianity, small c. I'm saying biblical Christianity Mm -hmm. is not a religion. And that's the most important thing that people miss. Because when Vivek was comparing Hinduism to Christianity, he talked about the different sets of Christianity, of course, trying to get Glenn Beck to understand. But understand this, biblical Christianity is not a religion. Religion says, how can I find favor with God? What can I do to find favor with God? That is religion. So I'm doing something. Just like Hinduism, have all these rules and regulations and these things that you have to do to achieve moksha. What can I do to find favor with God? Biblical Christianity says that you can't do anything to find favor with God. That's the complete opposite. And biblical Christianity is the only set of belief that teaches that you can't do anything whatsoever to find favor with God. Of course, Vivek said that sacrifice is the thread that links the Old Testament to the New New Testament. Mm -hmm. That's not true. And that's not what he's trying to say there. But that's not necessarily true. Because what he got close to the truth, though. He got very close to the truth when he talked about Abraham sacrificing his son and God didn't allow him to, but then God sacrificed his son in the New Testament. But Vivek, what he left out is that when God stopped Abraham from sacrificing his son, what did he provide? The Bible said he provided himself a lamb. The central truth or the thread that links the old to the new Vivek is Jesus Christ, not sacrifice. So that's important. That's yeah, important. If it right were there. sacrifice, we would be able to achieve it. We would be able to work for it. Work for it, exactly. And of course, biblical Christianity teaches that we cannot do anything or work to find favor with God. So the only way we achieve favor with God is when we trust in what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us. It's turning to that in repentant faith and trusting what Christ has done on the cross for us. It's not based on works, but it's Christ-centered. And that's very important there because we cannot do anything to be saved. We cannot do anything to find favor with God. It's when we trust in what Christ has done for us, then we can find favor with God. Of course, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.22, For he had made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So how do we be made the righteousness of God in him? 
The Bible tells us, of course, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, 9, and 10, for by grace, grace is God giving you something that you do not deserve. So for by grace are he saved through faith and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God. You cannot earn a gift, else it's not a gift. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. The Bible didn't say by good works, but he says unto good works. That's important because after we are saved, after we are find favor with God, the Bible don't command us to live a life pleasing to the Lord, but we're not living that life to achieve favor. We achieve that favor if we are trusting in what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us. So the Bible says we are creating Christ Jesus unto good works, which God had before ordained that we should walk in them. Of course, you have Romans chapter 4, verse 4 and 5. What shall we say then that Abraham, our father, as pertaining to the flesh, had found? For if Abraham were justified by works, let me read that again. For if Abraham were justified by works, he had way of to glory, but not before God. For he has said the scripture, Abraham believed God and it counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is a reward, not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. So the Bible is saying here, even Abraham, all the work Abraham did, did not count unto him for righteousness. But to the person who did not work, but believe on him, that trusting in Jesus Christ, his faith is counted for righteousness. That's biblical Christianity, not what the Catholic teach and what in many denominations out there teach about small C Christianity. Biblical Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. Yeah, Christianity comes with, is very exclusive. It's a very exclusive faith. It demands as a goal that we overcome our alienation from God due to our sin on the basis of the atonement of Christ. That is completely antithetical to the Hindu faith that says that you can achieve right standing with or reunification with or pleasing of God via good works, which is one of the essential tenets of Hinduism. And so that's going to be a problem if you believe that you can do something to earn God's favor You've put yourself in a position that the Bible doesn't really put you in. You've put yourself in a situation where you think you have more power than you actually do. And that pride, I don't think, will bode well in such a strong and powerful position like the presidency. Now, I'm not saying that he can't be a good president. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying that that's something for us to look at. The fact that he doesn't know what biblical Christianity is and he counts his Catholic school education as Christian education, demonstrates that he doesn't know what biblical Christianity is, number one. And number two, on some level, he thinks that the biblical principles as they exist in his head are compatible with and reconcilable with his Hindu faith. Now, he made a point to stress that he has the same values as Christianity. And the reason I think that's a little bit deceptive is because if we both say that we believe in, let's say, patriotism, for example, 
we can both say that America is great. We can both say that we love America, but we would have fundamentally different ideas of what America is. His family immigrated to the U.S. And I wish we had more information on why they came to the U.S. I would imagine is to pursue opportunities that they could not pursue in India as a result of perhaps the caste system, which actually is a part of the Hindu faith, holding the caste system. So perhaps he's not a spiritually practicing Hindu as he says he is, because he and his entire family fled India to escape the limitations that that society places on its people in terms of how far you can reach. Well, we don't know that, but... We don't know that. I wish we could hear him talk more about his Hindu faith as well as his background as to why his parents fled India and all that sort of thing. But anyway, I digress. I'm going down the rabbit trail here. So Christianity requires that you abandon whatever faith that you came from before you came to Christ as a part of being genuinely saved. You can't hold on to your Hindu faith and be Christian at the same time. The flip side is actually not true of Hinduism. When you talk to a Hindu, and I found that for the few Hindus that I've spoken to, they have no problem with adding one more God to their pantheon of gods, and they see the Lord Jesus Christ as one of their many other gods. So the Lord Jesus Christ being a little G God, and there's no problem with just adding one more. So superficially, they're okay with receiving him. But what they don't realize are the exclusive claims, as I said before, that Christianity makes. There is only one God. There are not millions of God, and there's only one way to the Father, which is through the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's something that we absolutely need to consider because what you believe will influence what you do, how you govern, and what you say, and how you interact with other countries in the world. Yeah, so let me also say this because I think when he talk about the values that we may share, again, looking at his life from the outside, I don't know this man. Right. But it seemed like he values family. He values being there for his kids and raising his kids. He values basically the 10 things that we talk about. He values entrepreneurship. He's right. done it himself. So I don't think he's necessarily wrong in saying that he shares some of the values. I just think he does not understand what true biblical Christianity is. But that's true for Donald Trump. Yeah. That's true for Joe Biden. That's true for maybe everybody on the debate stage for the first presidential debate, maybe except for Mike Pence. So that's not something I would necessarily hold against him. I do understand what he's trying to say when he's talking about a value system, because of course we say that the nation was found on a Judeo-Christian heritage. We can argue, you know, what does that really mean? Is that biblical Christianity? And to some extent, no. As you said, biblical Christianity is exclusive, but I also want to read Galatians 2 verse 16, because talking about the works as well. It says here, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. And that's clear as day, clear as day. So as I said, biblical Christianity is the only faith that says you cannot do anything five favor with God. You cannot work your way through it. It's all about what Jesus Christ has done on the cross for you. And you're listening to the Removing Barriers podcast. We're talking about Vivek Ramaswamy and whether as Christians, if we should be voting for one Hindu. We'll be right back. Mm-hmm. 
Hi, this is Jay. MCG and I would like for you to help us remove barriers by going to removingbarriers.net and subscribing to receive all things Removing Barriers. If you'd like to take your efforts a bit further and help us keep the mics on, consider donating at removingbarriers.net slash donate. Removing Barriers, a clear view of the cross. Thank you so much for listening to the Removing Barriers podcast. Make sure to rate us everywhere you listen to podcasts, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Removing Barriers, a clear view of the cross. All right, Jay. So we have discussed Vivek Ramaswamy and his beliefs and comparing Hinduism with Christianity. How does our relationship with Christ affect how we vote or how should it affect how we vote? Our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ should be the foundation from which we vote. It should permeate everything. If the Lord has indeed saved us and made us his own, he's changed everything about us. The scriptures say that we are a new creature in him. Then there are certain things that we absolutely can't vote for. And there are certain things that we should vote for. Now, I have trouble answering this question because on the one hand, I would say that it depends. If you have an eschatological view that is, say, post-millennial, you're probably going to put a lot more weight on your vote as a Christian than someone who is not post-millennial. If you believe that your job as a Christian is to Christianize the world as much as possible before the Lord returns and he takes over and, and finishes the job, obviously you're going to use whatever economic, social, political, cultural means that you have in order to bring that about. Whereas someone who is, say, believes in the rapture, for example, and doesn't believe that we're going to be here through the tribulation and that the Lord Jesus Christ will return and set the world in order, well, someone like that may not have as much of a heavy emphasis on the vote as the post-millennial would. So in one sense, it absolutely permeates even down to how you vote, your relationship with Christ does. And on the other sense, it's more important if your eschatological view is one or the other. Well, I don't agree 100% on that. I think that you probably agree with this. I think that only relationship with Christ should affect every area of our life. Yes. Including how we vote. Yes. Of course, we live in a world where we're not going to have perfect candidates. We're going to have imperfect human beings running. You know, so unfortunately, in the last general presidential election, we were faced with two very flawed and imperfect candidates. And it seems like in the 2024 election that we're going to be faced with again with two very flawed and imperfect candidates. Right. Whether it's Kamala Harris versus Donald Trump or it's Biden versus Donald Trump, let's face it, it's most likely going to be at this point Donald Trump coming out of the GOP. So a friend forwarded me something that I would like to read about how we should vote as Christians. It reads, how will I vote this November? I will vote for the most pro-life candidate because God hates the shedding of innocent blood. Proverbs 6 and verse 17. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. Those are things that God hates. I will vote for the most pro-Israel candidate because God blesses those who bless Israel and curses those who don't. Genesis 12 and verse 3. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. I will vote for the most pro-debt reduction candidate because the borrower is servant to the lender. And that's Proverbs 22 and verse 7. The rich ruleth over the poor 
and the borrower is servant to the lender. And of course, he goes on to say, I will vote for the most pro-work candidate because God says, if a man won't work, let him not eat. And that's 2 Thessalonians 3.10. For even when he were with you, this we command you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. And it said, I will vote for the most pro-marriage candidate because God is for marriage as defined in the Bible. And that's Genesis chapter 2 and verse 27. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be both one flesh. So in short, our Christian life should affect in every way how we vote. This is not something separate. Of course, I know I said I hate this statement, but there's some truth behind of it. At the end of the day, we're not voting for our pastor. Mm. So we can look for the candidate that will make the flourishing of our Christian faith more palatable. And again, this is not an endorsement of Vivek, but based on what he said, if I had to choose, I will choose him over Biden. Of course. So, and I will choose him probably over a lot of the candidates that are running in the GOP primary as well. So we may disagree on a lot of things, but if it comes to point where someone who at least condemns abortion, someone who at least would not prevent me from my freedom to exercise my faith and stuff like that, I would have zero problem voting for Vivek. Here is a clip, and this is kind of long, of Vivek talking to Al Sharpton about how to vote. And just to give a background of it, when Vivek was 18 years old, Al Sharpton was running for president, and Vivek asked him a similar question. But anyway, here's the clip. I need to show you this tape. Yeah. Back in 2003, when I ran for president and you were there to ask me a question at a forum that I was doing at Harvard University. So 20 years later, now my turn to ask. Yeah. Let me, let me first play you the, uh, the tape of you and I 20 years ago. Yeah. Let's get to my question here. Go ahead. Reverend Sharpton, hello. I'm Vivek, and I want to ask you, uh, last week on the show we had Senator Kerry, and this week, and then the week before we had Senator Edwards, and my question for you is, of all the Democratic candidates out there, why should I vote for the one with the least political experience? Well, you shouldn't, because I have the most political experience. <laughs> I got involved in the political... Uh, movement when I was 12 years old. And I've been involved in social policy for the last 30 years. So don't confuse people that have a job with political experience. So 20 years later, now my turn to ask you, <laughs> of all the Republican candidates out there, why should someone vote for you, the one with the least political experience? And I might add, you've never held office. <laughs> You've only voted twice That's correct. in the last few elections. You don't even vote regularly. Yes. And you support Donald Trump, who never held office until he was president. Well, you're putting a different standard on me, but I won't even make the racial uh, application there. We vote for Listen, you. Listen, at the age of 18, 
at the age of 18, I think you persuaded me on that one, that political experience is not the same as holding office. Oh, to tell you the truth, the so, reason so I came out there out and, right and I was intrigued. Can I put out right-wing press that Sharpton converted a young, well, I, I don't want to take credit for To you believe outside of political experience, you know, I'm going to tell you the truth. One of the things, I'll even give you one more for you, okay? You were the only anti-war candidate back then. I was against the Iraq war. As I recall, you were the only anti-war candidate in either party. Well, guess what? Tables turn now. I'm the only true anti-war candidate in either political party now when it comes to Ukraine. I believe in America first policies. I think this Ukraine war does not advance American interests. I was the only person with the courage to say that on the Republican debate stage last week. The, the real war I would take on is the war against the administrative state, the shadow government here at home. I think the people who we elect to run the government once again ought to be the people who actually run the government, not the cancerous bureaucrats in Washington, D.C. I'll have a 75 percent headcount reduction for all of the people who weren't elected in Washington, D.C. So this is a very different vision than you hear amongst traditional Democrats, for sure. But even amongst traditional Republicans, I want to shut down the administrative state. I want to declare independence from China. I want to grow our economy by drilling and fracking and embracing energy. And I want to revive national pride in this country. That's not a Republican idea or a Democratic vision. It is a pro-American vision. But I, but That's I, what I stand I, I for in this issue, race. I would take issue that when I opposed the war in Iraq and going for weapons of mass destruction that wasn't there, so I ended up being right. You can't compare that to the United States supporting Ukraine defending itself against Russia. So that, that's Look, not I think the there's a myth thing. that Ukraine's actually, I think I was against the Iraq war then, but I'm consistent now. Ukraine is not some democracy that we've now painted it to be. I think this is a, a regime that is a really has some serious for flaws the United as well. States. Ukraine is in a, so I think I respectfully a, a disagree strategic with you. place where I respectfully we disagree that I do not think. That but all right, all right, we can agree to disagree on Ukraine that. Ukraine is Let not a NATO ally, issue, and, and Ukraine doesn't advance U.S. interests. We disagree so that's one of the things that's distinctive about that. my views. We disagree respectfully yep. on that. So there you have it, Vivek, and why you should vote for him and some of the stuff he believes. But yeah, at the end of the day, you know, as the message my friend sent to me, it says, I will vote for the candidate who most closely believes government purpose is to reward good and punish evil. That's Romans chapter 13. I will vote as close to God's words as possible. But as I said, you know, hey, it's going to be two imperfect candidates. And we're going to have to choose one. So, or maybe do a write-in, but I'm sure whoever you're writing might be <laughs> imperfect as well. So, Right. I just want to add on to that. I do agree with voting for the candidate that most closely aligns with biblical values. But there needs to be a little bit of a caveat there, too. At the opening of the podcast, MCG, you mentioned how the American people, for whatever reason, attribute more power to the presidency than he actually has. And so I think there's something that the American people need to hash out in their minds first. Like, for example, one of the 10 commandments of the 2024 elections, according to Vivek Ramaswamy, is the fact that parents determine the education of their children. The fact that a presidential candidate has to even address the issue of education and who gets to educate who, how, demonstrates how much power, whether actual or perceived, that we've ceded to the executive branch of the government, that we've ceded to the federal government. Well, I think he's saying that because if you look at what's going on, there have been a number of teachers coming right. out on TikTok and other social the media platforms saying yeah. that parents don't have a right to know 
how their children identify. Right. Teachers can keep secret from them. Right. Parents need to stay out of education. I've seen all these posts on social media. Yep. And so it's refreshing to see a candidate that say, hey, parents, we're not going to take that power away from you. Yeah, we homeschool our boys. I'm not going to send them to government schools. That's really what public schools are, government schools. Yeah. So I'm not going to send them to, at least in the U.S., I'm not going to send them to the government school. So I don't know if you're saying that statement should not even be said, which in a sense I agree. But where the politics is going in this country, it's good to see a candidate that we have. And I think most of the candidates on the GOP and maybe RFK Jr. might agree with that, that parents should, or let's say RFK Jr. on the Democratic side, should be the ones who determine the education of their kids. Okay, so then Christians should be looking at that statement and being reassured that as the leader and the wielder, if you would, of federal power, then he is not of the belief that the government should be involved in the educational choices that parents are making for their children? Well, yeah, I think he's saying that the government should stay out of it. Okay, I suppose that's a comfort. So in light of all of these things, do you think that a Christian should vote for a Hindu? Now, if you ask me, I remember watching this particular video of a Christian woman saying to Vivek, oh, you behave more like a Christian than some Christians I know. And I thought, goodness, well, you might be right on those certain terms, on some particular terms, but that should never be the case that a Hindu is behaving more like a Christian than a Christian is. Well, let me say this. That's the problem. Yeah. As I said before, Christianity is not about a behavior. It's not about work. Yes. Should your faith affect your behavior? Yes. yes, we are saved unto good works, not by good works. Right. Christianity is looking to change the person from the inside out and not just washing the outside of the cup. The scripture is clear about people being whited sepulchers, looking beautiful on the outside, but inside you're filled with dead men's bones. The scripture is clear about the person who is not inwardly clean, but portraying themselves to be clean outwardly. So anyway, all that to say, should a Christian vote for a Hindu? We've talked about how Hinduism has their pantheon of gods and they don't mind adding one more, how what you believe affects how you govern and how you behave, his misunderstanding of the Christian faith and not understanding that it's a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and not necessarily a list of behaviors or attitudes. Should a Christian vote for a Hindu? Well, if a Christian did not have a problem voting for Donald Trump, who is a warmonger, if a Christian didn't have problem voting for Biden, who's a Catholic, a.k.a. a non-biblical Christian faith, and one who sells the country for personal gains, and Christians do not have problem voting for Obama, who many argue was Muslim, I do not think they should have a problem voting for Hindu. Facts. Right? So, in short, yes, a Christian can vote for Hindu. And Vivek is better than most of the ones running and more closely aligned in what I am personally looking for, more so than Obama, who at times professed to be Christian and even Biden. As a matter of fact, I will say this for sure. The 2024 presidential election is over a year away as to this recording. But I know for a fact I'm not voting for Biden. I don't know who I'm voting for, (laughs) but I know for a fact I'm not voting for Biden. Mm -hmm. Who I ultimately vote for is still out there. On the GOP side, I like Vivek, I like Mike Pence, I like DeSantis, and I like Scott. And that's in no particular order. Mm -hmm. Of those four men that I just mentioned from the GOP side, two of them I know have a testimony of salvation. Whether they're truly saved or not, I don't know. But I know Mike Pence, I've heard, gave a testimony of salvation. I heard Tim Scott gave a clear testimony of salvation. But other than that, and most likely Tim Scott, 
and Mike Pence are not going to be the candidate coming out based on the current polls. Vivek and DeSantis are ahead of him and Trump is way above them. Right. So what are we going to do? You know, on the Democratic side, I do like RFK Jr. to some extent. He seemed very centrist and tried to balance his stuff. He's not a Biden in any way. So, but I don't even think the Democrats are going to have a primary and they already crowned Biden to run. So who knows? Most likely if Biden can't, they're going to probably put Kamala in place or even that guy from Newsom from California. So Gavin Newsom. So in short, I don't see that there's a problem if a Christian vote for Hindu because Christians didn't have a problem voting for Donald Trump and look at his past. They didn't have a problem voting for Biden and look at what he's doing to the country. They didn't have a problem voting for Obama or, or Bush Reagan or any of these people. So mm-hmm. Reagan with the no fault divorce and Right. I don't I don't yep. think they should have a problem with this one. Yeah, it would be inconsistent for Christians to raise an issue with his Hindu faith when <laughs> we've historically been voting for some really non Christian folk. If I should choose, would I choose a Hindu? Most likely not. Right. So this is causing a lot of people, particularly some Christians, a little bit of an issue. Or maybe not. Maybe I'm just reading the room wrong. But I would like to remind all of us that the scriptures say the heart of the king is in the Lord's hand. He turns it like water wherever he wants to. God is sovereign. And that is independent of who is in the way. It is not dependent at all on who's in the White House. So Christians shouldn't fret is what I'm trying to get across. And there are biblical examples of men who didn't fear God that ruled in such a way that Jews were allowed to flourish. The Jewish people were allowed to flourish. I'm thinking of King Cyrus in Daniel's time or King Artaxerxes and Nehemiah's time. Yeah, but time. you're talking about a different... Completely different. I get right. that. But the heart of the king is in the Lord's hand. And so Christians shouldn't fret. Like the world right. is not going to end if a Hindu named Vivek Ramaswamy becomes president. However, I do wonder and hope, and this is probably just a side conversation, Should Christians really take this opportunity to evaluate what they really believe about how they should be living and interacting and behaving in a pluralistic world? What does that mean? Is our Christianity pervasive to the point that it affects how we vote? Are we one issue voters or are we looking at the entirety of the situation and appealing and praying to the Lord for wisdom on who to vote for? Surprisingly, Depending on how the country is going, there may be times where voting for someone that is not in your political party is more biblically sound than voting for the person in your political party. I guess what I'm saying is I'm trying to encourage people not to just think voting Republican or voting Democrat, but to actually think through the issues. If your president, for example, shamelessly wields the incredible power that is the United States military to wreak havoc, ungodly and unjust havoc in other parts of the world, is that worth whatever other biblical tenets that you're holding to over here? It's not black and white is what I'm saying. You can't just walk into the voting booth and just check R for Republican or D for Democrat just blindly. Although it's also true that the parties have become so incredibly polarized over certain issues, i.e. say abortion, for example, where that might just be the situation that we find ourselves in as a country. Yeah, but we know the president doesn't have that power to just declare war. I know you're making an example, but that's something that, because again, the president, U.S. president doesn't have as much power as... No, no, no. He doesn't have that kind of power, but you could pull something like an Obama where you're running on a platform of anti-war, no more war, and then your entire presidency, you're bombing other people in other countries via drones, which... Well, all of them do that. All of them did that. Trump did that. All of them did that. Yes, what I'm saying is that 
everything needs to be evaluated. Don't just walk into the booth and just check R for Republican or D for Democrat. Well, I think the most important thing here is that, firstly, I don't think as biblical Christians we should be having a political party. I'm not a Democrat. I'm not a Republican. I don't want to be identified, labeled by any of these things. I look at both sides. I consider both parties. I'm looking at, as I said, RFK Jr. I look at the GOP. The Democrats are not really having a primary, so they don't have a lot of candidates to look at. I look at everybody, and I also strongly consider writing. I don't just vote Republican or just vote. I think that's really foolish. I grew up in a home where, you know, my mom was one party. Of course, not in the U.S., but she always voted one party. I don't think my mom has ever voted for the other party. And no matter what, the party is always wrong. And I have an aunt. She was the opposite of my mom. She was the other party for my mom. And quite honestly, during the election cycle, they don't talk to each other for like a couple of months <laughs> just because for the tension of the election. That's foolish. Right. Yeah. So I don't think Christians should be politically affiliated like that. Right. And, and yet some of them are, which is wrong. That's what I was trying to get at. Well, I don't know if it says wrong, but it's my opinion. Do you think that a practicing Hindu in the White House will affect the religious makeup of the country? Do you think it'll affect it one way or the other? Right, actually, not a whole lot. If it does affect it, it's not going to be a whole lot. You know, I think a lot of the issues that people have in Wood Vivek is not even so much the fact that he's, well, I guess because he's Hindu, but I think it's pride. Pride on whose part? Vivek's part or the no, people's part? pride on the people's part okay. in terms of that they say, this country was formed and built on the foundation of Judeo-Christian heritage. Mm-hmm. And it is appalling to them to think that a Hindu will be occupying the Oval Office. Oh, I considered that. And maybe bringing in whatever gods that they may have or whatever, shrines or whatever. I think that's the issue with a lot of Christians. There is one pastor that's saying exactly that. Keep your Hinduism and your many false gods out of our White House because America is a Christian nation and et cetera. That's the issue. That's one of the big issues, I believe. But they fail to recognize that, hey, quite honestly, being a Catholic... There's no difference in being a Hindu. Both of them are false. Mm-hmm. Being a Muslim and being a Hindu, there's no difference. Both of them are false. So if Obama, again, I don't have any proof that Obama ever said that he's Muslim. I think his father was, but a lot of accusations say he was Muslim. But Obama claimed at least one point that he's Christian. None of these men were biblical Christian. They were nominal Christian. And Vivek himself said he is a nominal Hindu. So I think the problem is more pride that, oh, we don't want this, but they'll overlook all the other evils that were in the White House. What about President Clinton? What did he do in the Oval Office? Monica Lewinsky? Come on. Mm. What are we trying to keep out of the Oval Office? Indecency? Sin? I'm sorry. I think, even though I can prove it, probably every presidential candidate in the past, the Oval Office is not a sacred, sanctified area, you know? At least in my opinion. So Right. Think about it in terms of influence, though. We have people who are, say, for example, woke that are in the White House and their influence. Goodness, there's a market influence throughout the entire nation. So in that particular sense, will having a Hindu in the White House. No, the- because as the saying goes, what happened in your house is more important than what happened in the White House. Mm, Again, we are putting too much emphasis on this. Quite honestly, while who is a president affect us to some extent a.k.a. inflation, Bidenomics, mm-hmm. maybe affecting us and our family. Our grocery bill has gone up. Mm-hmm. Our electric bill is up. A lot of bills are up. That's a fact over the past couple of years since Biden took office, or you can say maybe if you don't want to be in a Biden, you can be in a COVID. But yes, the president does affect you in some degree. But the degree to which it affects you is a lot smaller 
than what the mainstream media and people would actually say and agree to. There is not a lot of difference in my household between Trump and Biden. Mm -hmm. Actually, the major difference is how much I budget for groceries per month. That's the major difference. And the Lord has blessed us with enough so we can at least cover that difference to some degree. Of course, we can't go out there and buy a Tesla for cash or whatever, <laughs> but at least we can live a comfortable life. Mm-hmm. Biden didn't come in and change my life so drastically that I still go out and tell people about Jesus without hindrance. Biden didn't change that. I still have my gas car. Biden didn't change that, even though he's trying. So I'm just simply <laughs> saying, yes, the religion of the candidate may affect the country, but it's not going to affect individual families that heavily as we're being, making a big deal. And that's the strength of the United States. If the individual family... Is the strength is, of the United States Constitution. Yes, right. That caused that. But again, I think the big thing here is this. They just don't want the Hindu in their Oval Office because they look at it as being sacred. And I don't. Could be because I'm an immigrant and I don't understand the American exceptionalism. But at the end of the day, as I said, I don't agree with that. Would I prefer for him not to be Hindu? Or do I prefer for the person who's president not to be Hindu? Yes, but I also prefer the person who's president not to be Catholic. And I also prefer them not to believe the same thing Donald Trump believes as well, at Mm -hmm. least spiritually. Mm -hmm. To me, there's no difference here. If you're okay with a Catholic, then you should be okay with a Hindu. If you're okay with a Muslim, then you should be okay with, quite honestly, a Mormon. Both of them are false. Right. Yeah, I don't think a practicing Hindu will affect the makeup of the nation altogether. Although I do wonder about the influence it could have in terms of how people think about the true biblical Christian faith. I would hate for someone to see a Hindu in the White House and see, because he has Republican talking points, that somehow this is the same as biblical Christianity. And then they assume that, oh, okay, well, Christianity is an ecumenical faith. Everybody just come together and get along and everybody's going to be saved and everybody's going to be okay. And you would think that no one would think that. But the reality is, during Trump's term, we saw a lot of people confusing their Christianity with their conservatism. Yeah. And we saw a lot of that happening. And so my concern is that with the Hindu in the White House, that this misunderstanding of what biblical Christianity is will continue. And then we as a people don't have a clear understanding of what biblical Christianity is. Granted, I understand that the battle shouldn't be fought on that particular front because Christians, Bible-believing Christians, should be at the forefront of preaching the gospel and influencing the culture for Christ that the people know what biblical Christianity is. But in the absence of that, I do think that perhaps it will have a detrimental effect in terms of what people think biblical Christianity is. So who do you think is the perfect candidate? We've got a Hindu with a lot of good talking points that we would most likely agree with at the 30,000-foot view level. We've got a rampaging bull out for revenge. That is Donald Trump. Maybe he's the right one for the White House, even though he doesn't have a faith that most Christians would say is completely biblical. Well, then who is the perfect candidate? Well, I have two perfect candidates that I would vote for if these two persons would run. Okay, let's hear it. Two of them. Who are they? The first one is tall, dark, and handsome. He has a near-perfect wife. He has four rambunctious boys. Oh. He, he has an amazing <laughs> Caribbean accent. He has a testimony of salvation. But unfortunately, I am not planning on running. You would definitely have my vote. But also, I'm not qualified. 
Constitutionally, I wasn't born in the U.S., so I'm not qualified uh, to run. So I'm not running. So that's the first perfect candidate. That's funny. The second one, of course, is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Yes. But he, too, is not running. He was born in Bethlehem. So he's not constitutionally not qualified. So my two perfect candidates, not only are they not qualified to run, I'm sure they don't have any desire to run. But here's the truth. God is sovereign. And whoever wins the general election would be the person who God wants there, even if it is Biden. Some leaders are put in place for punishment and some are put in place for blessing. Now, whether or not Biden was put in place for punishment or blessing, that's not for me to determine. That's for the Lord. Whether Trump was put in for blessing or punishment, that's for the Lord to determine. Isaiah 45 verse 1 and 2 said, Thus said the Lord to his anointed, to Cyprus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue the nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings, to open before him the two labored gates, and the gates shall not be shut. I will go before thee, and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass, and cut in sunder the bars of iron. So in that verse, God calls a pagan king, Cyprus, anointed. A pagan king. God put him in place for his purpose. Think about Daniel chapter 2, verse 21. And he changed the times and the season. He removed kings and set it up kings. He gave it wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. Isaiah 40 and verse 23. God that bringeth the princes to nothing, he maketh the judges of the earth as vanity. Leaders have no power without God allowing it. Isn't that comforting that our God is sovereign? John 19 verse 11, Jesus answered, Thou couldest have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore, he that delivered me unto thee had the greatest sin. And I'd just like to quote Ken Ham here. The prophet Habakkuk was dismayed at pagan king being used by God to judge his own people. For the wicked surrounded the righteous. Therefore, perverse judgment proceed. Habakkuk 1 verse 4. And how did God answer the prophet? Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told you. For indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation. So regardless of the outcome of the election, even if we are dismayed or discouraged like Habakkuk, we have to recognize that God is in control. But does that mean we should not be doing anything then? No, responsibility and sovereignty go hand in hand. But only God can bring these together in ways we cannot understand. And Kenham continues, For as an example, I often use the parable of the ten minus, a noble man representing Jesus, left for another country to become king, and he entrusts resources to servants, representing followers of Jesus. They were told to do business till I come, Luke 19.13. But more importantly than us voting is are we sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what will change hearts and minds, not the president. As important as that is, Christians should be more concerned about the sharing of the precious gospel of Jesus Christ. And then 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18 to 24, For the preaching of the gospel is to them that perish foolishness. For unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? 
Had not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleases God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. As I would say, hey, if it comes down to Vivek and we have to vote for him, I wouldn't have a problem to vote for him. I haven't made up my mind yet, and I probably won't make up my mind until very close to the election. But hey, I'm trusting in God as being sovereign. And whosoever God put there, I will accept. But I will also do my responsibility and my civic duty and go out there and vote. Thank you so much for listening to the Removing Barriers podcast. Make sure to rate us everywhere you listen to podcasts, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Removing Barriers, a clear view of the cross. Thank you for listening. To get a hold of us, to support this podcast, or to learn more about Removing Barriers, go to removingbarriers.net. This has been the Removing Barriers podcast. We attempted to remove barriers so that we all can have a clear view of the cross.